Welcome back to the Andrew Curtis Show. And this week, we're going to start with a story. Or rather, we're going to go back in time a little bit. Um, our hero, who looks suspiciously like me, but from a few years ago, um, I was on a real decision-making buzz, uh, trying to understand decision-making. Um, and there's a lot of factors that go into this. And so I was looking to find a resource where I could learn more about it. And I discovered a website called The Great Courses, and I'd highly recommend it to someone not just interested in decision-making, but anything. Uh, there are lecture series delivered by top experts in all sorts of fields, mathematics, art, science, philosophy, whatever. Um, but as a part of this, I discovered a lecture series by Michael A. Roberto on the art of critical decision-making. Now, uh, Michael is a professor at Bryant University in um, Rhode Island, the USA, uh, and Bryant is one of the top three business, runs one of the top three business programs in the United States. And so I took a bit of a punt and reached out and just told him how much I enjoyed his lecture series and would he be interested in appearing on the show? Well, fortunately for you and I, he said yes. So you're about to hear the insights of a man who has dedicated himself to understanding organizational decision-making, learning from history, and learning how we can get the best out of the teams that we're working with. Uh, he's also got some exciting projects in the future as well. So I'm already thinking about how I can get him on the show again. That's how good this man is. But uh, that is enough stalling from me. Here is Michael A. Roberto. Hi, Andrew. How are you today? <laughs> I'm, I'm wonderful, thank you. And I really do appreciate you joining me this morning. Um, oh, well, this morning for, the, for me, where is it? What, what time is it for you right now? It's 9 a.m. here on nice. the East Coast of the U.S. Nice, nice. Isn't it, you know, the, the, how the Internet's brought the world together. It's a beautiful thing. Um, <laughs> so, look, um, I, I guess the place I wanted to start from um, was uh, the place that your uh, Great Courses lecture series began, which was this idea of, of decisions as a process. Um, which greatly impacted me because I think when, when we look at making a big choice, um, I know previously I'd looked at, okay, there's the moment. You know, you're building up to this big thing and then there's the moment you make that decision. Um, but I thought you really well unpacked this idea of, of what leads up to and then even after what we would call the decision-making moment. So maybe if, if we could lead off on that thought and then just see where we end up, what would you, uh, what would you expand on that to say? Sure. You know, I think that when we think about decisions, we think about, you know, there's some aha moment where we decided um, this was the right course of action. And, yeah. and sometimes that's the case. We can think of individual choices we make in life where sometimes we can point to that day, that hour. We say, you know, we realize this was the right path. Mm. But for many of us, whether it's in our personal lives or certainly, I think, in professional work and organizations, it's very hard to put your finger on that moment. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of work looking at how businesses make decisions and you find that looking back at some very crucial strategic choices, it's very hard to find that moment. In fact, mm. it, it's something that really did evolve over time. Um, a consensus may have emerged or um, at least a, a line of thinking began to emerge. And, you know, at some point, yes, they began to commit resources and maybe that's the moment. But really, the decision had been made before that, but no one can quite put their finger on it. So. <laughs> Decision-making is a process. It evolves. It grows in fits and starts. Um, you sometimes have to go backward to move forward. Um, and that process is not just cognitive, right? It's not just about our thinking. It's about our emotion. Mm. And work I do, it's a lot about interpersonal dynamics. How do you work with a team of people? Um, and how do you gather advice from them, information from them, and then somehow digest that to arrive at a plan of action? Yeah. Well, look, I'd love to, I guess, ultimately touch on each one of those things if we can over time. But um, yeah, I thought it'd be cool to hear from you as well. Like this became the area that you, uh, I guess, specialized 
in. Uh, so it'd be great to hear what was your journey in terms of this, uh, you know, seeing decision making as a, um, I don't know, something just kind of captured you. Where did the where did the inspiration come from? You know, I was when I chose to go back to graduate school, I was working at a company in the U.S. called Staples, mm -hmm. which is a large office supply superstore. And uh, I was working on um, an acquisition integration team. Um, the, the company, this was back, the company was very young at the time, had decided to move beyond just physical stores towards serving large corporations um, through a direct sales force at the time. The internet wasn't yet really up and going, so it was right. a sales force and a catalog. And, um, and as I was working on the integration team, I heard a lot about how the decision was made. A, to make this move in general, and B, how to select the particular acquisitions they'd made. Mm. And I just got curious about how that was done. And so when I decided to go back to grad school, you know, I wrote my essay saying, I think this is what I want to study. I want to study how people make acquisition decisions. Okay. Then once I got to graduate school, I realized that was way too narrow. I, right. I really was interested in just plain old how organizations make decisions. And um, I worked with a great advisor named David Garvin, um, and uh, we began to write some case studies on this. And I just got very interested in how you know, the usual explanations for poor decisions just didn't hold water in many cases. You know, we mm. see a company, we see an individual, we see an American president make bad choices. <laughs> we, what do we blame it on? We blame it on intelligence. They're not smart enough. Right. Well, there's a lot of smart business executives who make really dumb choices, right? Mm. And we blame it on their motives. They know the right motives or intentions. Well, there's a lot of people with good intentions who make poor choices, right? And so mm. I'm very interested in, there has to be more than just, you know, it's got to be more than just they aren't smart enough, you know? Yeah. What that causes people to make bad choices? Yeah. So what were some of the things that first started to show up for you then in that, in that line of research that maybe surprised you? Well, one of the first things that captivated me, I don't know if it surprised me because I right. certainly resonated with me, but was the idea of groupthink. Okay. And, and you know, I read the seminal uh, work of Irving Janis, and what he did is um, he did these famous studies of American presidents and very famous foreign policy choices, perhaps the most famous one of John Kennedy and the Bay of Pigs fiasco. Right. How could such a smart group of people um, make such a just an awful decision? You know, and, and what he does is he says, look, in many cases, what you have with a group of people is this tremendous pressure to conform, to go mm -hmm. along together. And people are afraid to dissent. And as a result, the leaders don't hear all sides of an issue. That really struck me. It resonated with me from my private sector experience. And, and that began sort of my journey saying, okay, I'm really interested in, um, in why that happens and digging deeper on that. Um, and then I said, well, there must be other reasons why groups fail too in making right. good choices. Right? Groupthink must be about one of the various uh, traps they fall into. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, what I love about that is that it does combine, when you're talking about those factors that come together as well, those, those personal factors uh, in decision making that I think, um, you know, it's interesting even in my own, uh, you know, study into this um, topic, understanding the, the societal factors that sit alongside the intellectual ones where often one, one party will throw rocks at the other one and say, well, you know, like you say, you guys clearly weren't smart enough or you're doing this for these reasons, but I personally, I'm making this decision for intellectual reasons, uh, <laughs> which is like, the, you know, <laughs> one, of the, one of the mothers of all, all, all big mistakes in that respect. That's right. We look at ourselves very differently than we look at others. And, and you know, psychologists call this the, the fundamental attribution error. Basically, yes. the notion is that, you know, when someone else fails, we look inside of them and find their flaws. But when we fail, we blame it on unexpected external. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I guess let's let's talk more about this groupthink idea then. So um and and you do actually in the lecture series as well, which again for everybody listening, I'd highly recommend you check out. It is on thegreatcourses.com. It's called the Art of Critical Decision Making. But you do talk about the the Bay of Pigs uh, fiasco. Um, but specifically then this idea of groupthink. Can we get a little deeper into that then about what what that starts to look like and what the um what are the signals that we're experiencing groupthink? Um, for somebody who is in an organization right now um, and wants to avoid you know, that kind of a level of mistake? I think some of the clear signals that groupthink may be occurring uh, start with the notion of premature convergence on a single alternative. Okay. You know, are you really looking at a range of options or do you find that the group has pretty quickly you know, converged on one idea and they're not re- looking at a range of alternatives? That's a clear signal. Mm. Uh, do you feel that, um, well, geez, you know, I have a doubt, but I'm afraid to express it for some reason. You know, are you feeling personally a pressure to kind of censor yourself in any way? Um, that's a clear concern. You find there hasn't been really a, a, a sound discussion of the types of risks that might be involved. You know, are, are we sort of downplaying risks? That's a concern, always a concern when, when we're doing, engaged in decision making. Have we uh, found that, you know, one or two people might be dominating the group, you know, and, and they're providing much of the, the, the advocacy for the particular plan and maybe making it difficult for those who might have a different point of view from expressing that. Those are all sort of clear signals that groupthink might be occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, and the result often is this sort of rush to judgment and this failure to really probe and test your assumptions carefully. Maybe not even to explicitly state your assumptions. You know, they go unchallenged, unstated, and unchallenged if groupthink happens. And uh, and the danger as a result can often be that uh, you don't fully think through what the consequences of a particular plan of action might be. Mm. Um, and you have people later, um, you know, find, kicking themselves, saying, "Geez, you know, I thought the whole group." <laughs> right. Would be- me. I thought I was the only dissenter. And then they discover there were three or four people who had concerns, but each of them thought they were the only one. And that's mm. a clear uh, result of groupthink. Yeah, you, you actually talk about too in the, in the series as well, this idea of places that have like a culture of yes, uh, where again, when a, a decision is being made, everyone goes, yep. <laughs> uh, right. and, and, and leading to that same kind of a situation, right? I talk about that, when, you know, as a leader, if you put a plan on the table, and you hear silence. Mm. Silence does not equal consent. You know, silence means, I mean, if they really believed in it, they would affirmatively say they believed in it. Right. But the silent nod, you know, where they kind of nod yes, but they're not really saying much, means they might have some reservations. They're just, they could be afraid to state them, right? And leaders are always surprised. I just was working with a, with a, a management team of a tech firm, and I surveyed the team. And one of the questions I asked was, were, were people afraid to bring a challenging point of view, a point of view that was different than that of the CEO? Mm. And uh, the CEO answered, well, of course not. You know, I'm really <laughs> right. And I was stunned when he discovered that people, you know, were extremely afraid to bring a counter point of view to the table on his team. Wow. And lack of self-awareness also on the part of the leader can cause groupthink because they're not they're not a understanding or aware of the fact that their presence, their, the way they carry themselves may be leading to this problem. 
Wow. Are you very familiar with, um, now I, I'm not sure I pronounce his name correctly, but uh, uh, I think it's Patrick Lacone's um, Five Dysfunctions of a Team? Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because one of the things that, um, that struck me so strongly with his work uh, was this idea, yeah, that one of the signs of a dysfunctional team is an absence of conflict. Uh, which I found, yeah, incredibly, um, I don't know, that, that idea that a team that is, there is no sign of conflict is in bigger trouble than a team where, and when we're talking about conflict as well, it's not, you know, name calling and the aggressive kind of, that kind of stuff, but that ability to have a re robust disagreement about something uh, is a sign that something's seriously wrong. Right, so I'm a big advocate, you know, in my work, both in the course you saw, right into you, for the value of constructive conflict. Yeah. Uh, I, I argue that conflict leads to better decisions. Now, again, by conflict, I don't mean, um, you know, personal attack um, mm. and the like or personality clashes. I mean, substantive debate about issues. Um, it leads to the generation and evaluation of more alternatives. It leads to the probing and testing of assumptions, the uncovering of hidden risks. I mean, conflict. And, and there's very clear research on this, that conflict leads to better quality if managed appropriately. And so, yeah, I think that's right. In fact, there's a great quote, you know, from Alfred Sloan, who was the really the man who created and built General Motors in the, in the 30s and 40s and 50s uh, at the time that they reached their pinnacle of their success. And Sloan had this famous quote where he said, uh, and they were all men around the table, he said, gentlemen, uh, I take it we're all in agreement here, um, but, you know, let us postpone the decision so there's time for us to develop some disagreement. Wow. Asked for what he, he created this thing called the second chance meeting, which basically okay. was I'm going to give everybody a second chance to think about why this might not be a good idea because he feared that people were just kind of too quickly converging on one plan. And so every once in a while, he'd pull out this idea of the second chance. You know, do we, do, do we need to maybe think for a moment because we haven't even surfaced an alternative point of view? And is that a good thing? Mm, mm. And so conflict can be powerful, it has to be managed appropriately. Um, and that can be a challenge for many teams. Many teams have a hard time engaging in substantive debate without it getting personal, without it getting emotional and the like. And, and so that's the real challenge. I mean, you do want to encourage that diverse exchange of ideas. You want to keep it substantive. The other thing, of course, though, is you can't debate forever. You know, you're mm -hmm. not a society. At some point, you have to move from discussion and dialogue to decision and that always that won't always happen by consensus, right? Sometimes the leader has to make the tough call, and and that's a challenge. Um, but if you don't, you can have that sort of chronic inaction, right? You can talk and you can talk, and the right. competition divide. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, you've touched on two things there actually that I'd love to get into a little bit more in more detail. So first of all, then talking about this idea of of having this constructive conflict, then. Um, what are some things that then, you know, you look to or you advise in, uh, you know, an organization that's looking to develop that where perhaps it's been absent in the past? I think it's important that you do more than just talk about it, that you have to actually employ some techniques that will stimulate such debate. So a couple of the ones that I really like, I love the idea of splitting your team into two or more subgroups, have each subgroup try to develop an alternative. Hmm. and then have to exchange and critique each other's ideas. Oh, okay. um, this most famously was done by John Kennedy in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, the famous story is he learned from his mistake in the Bay of Pigs from when groupthink had occurred, and he and his advisors devised some techniques for stimulating debate. And one of them was to break into subgroups 
to generate alternatives and then critique each other's ideas. The other mm. thing they did effectively is assign some people to play the role of devil's advocate within the team. Right. Which is what I really like. Again, asking someone, but to play that role in a positive way. So not simply to poke holes in others' ideas, but to ask questions and to help the group perhaps generate new options, not just to tear apart the idea on the table. So a good devil's advocate. There's yeah. some other, uh, one that I see companies do pretty effectively from time to time is the, the competitor role play. Asking okay. one or more people on the team to put themselves in the shoes of the competition and to ask them, well, how do you think the comp competition will react if we make X decision or Y decision? Mm. And sometimes doing that little role play of the competition can open eyes on the team saying, gosh, we didn't think of that possible counter move and, and its implications for us. So that's another one that you can do. But I think you need these kinds of techniques um, to stimulate debate. You can't just say to the team, I want more debate. Like, that's <laughs> yeah. you, know, you have to actually have some ways they can engage with one another where you're helping to structure the dialogue in a way so it'll be positive. Mm, yeah, yeah. And I, and I think that's that's an important thing, isn't it, to recognize that this is a, um, a, a positive contribution of, well, like you said, that positive kind of conflict, that positive tension on an idea to say, well, does this bear the load of, uh, of a real world situation um, or are we all just looking to pat ourselves on the back? Right. And I, and I, and I think on the opposite side, you have to be very mindful of the people playing the devil's advocate role, you know, mm. that, that they're not, first of all, I think the same people cannot always play that role. They'll become a broken record. You know, right. you have to be oh, mindful. Huh. So you want that, that role has to be done thoughtfully. It can't always be the same person and it has to be done with a, with a goal of moving the discussion forward, not trying to stop the discussion in its tracks. Mm, I like that. In fact, that, that was the second part I wanted to get to then was um, in those cultures that perhaps have gone the other way, uh, where there is too much of that negative discussion there, or it is just a matter of kind of roadblocking and, and things like that. Um, again, if, if my memory serves, I think you shared an example from, um, I believe it might have been IBM, um, of just a culture that had got to this point where it was more, um, <laughs> it was more blessed to shoot an idea down than to find a way to get something to work. Um, so if you've got a culture that's gone on more of that negative side where there, it is not so much constructive and more, more negative, how do you start to write the balance the other way? Right. You are right. It was IBM. It was back in the nineties when Lou Gerstner turned the company around. As you recall, they were in deep financial trouble in, in the nineties. And, yeah. and one of the things he described was, you know, as opposed to the culture of yes, we talked about earlier, mm. he described the culture of no, mm. where he said everyone and say no, no one was willing to say yes, right? Everyone was always looking for the objections. And I think in that kind of culture, what you really need is you need people to, you need to encourage this idea of bringing alternatives to the table. Mm -hmm. Not telling me why this plan won't work, but what are the other possible alternatives? Right. Now, the, the critic may not always have that alternative in mind, but they can, you can encourage them to ask questions their goal should be to help the group find that alternative, even if they don't have it in them. They may believe option X is not the right option. They might not know what option Y is, but using them as a vehicle to sort of, how do we get to option Y, right? And mm. not just let's argue over option X forever. That just doesn't get you anywhere, right? I mean, some people are advocating for it. Others are saying it's wrong. How do we move beyond that impasse? Well, like, you move beyond that impasse by trying to get people to think of what are Y, Z, A, B, C options, right? That's one yeah. thing to do, I think. Yeah, but I think yeah. on that, you also have to 
in that culture. You have to also understand, and I think the leader needs to be really clear on, you know, how are we ultimately arriving at the decision? Hmm. You know, we're, we're not waiting for a consensus here. We're not certainly not looking for unanimity. I mean, you'll never move in most organizations if you wait for a unanimous choice. Right, <laughs> right. So yeah. You have to be able to say, look, we're going to have that robust debate. We're going to hear different points of view. But at some point, we have to move. Mm. And, uh, and as a leader, the key here is if you lead that process in a fair and just way. Yeah. It means you give people voice and you show that you've listened to them in a genuine way. They will understand that at some point you have to make the call and mm. that you're not going to agree. Mm. The process when as a leader, you in some way caused them to think that the process wasn't fair, that you didn't give them ample voice. Or worst case, as my friend Mike Watkins says, they believe that you engage them in what he calls a charade of consultation. Right, where yeah. You really had already made up your mind and you really mm. weren't for a true debate. You, you know, you were just uh, uh, turning to them to make it look like you were building buy-in, right? And so, mm. Peter, though, you're going to have to move the team. Waiting for unanimous decision or consensus uh, often means you're going to be too slow. And I think that's something to keep in mind as a way to how do we manage. And also, it's important not just because you don't want to be too slow, but you don't want to let debates drag on forever because they will get personal the longer they drag on. Mm. In fact, you, again, you remind me of a, another example that you'd shared about that 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 point where um, you know a strong leader says, "Okay, look, we're going to discuss this up to a point." And I want um, again, I believe there was an example, I think more from a, it was the medical field, I think it was a hospital um, of, uh, you know, debate going on and saying, look, let's be open and honest and discuss this thing. Uh, and then a decision gets made. And then, of course, this person wants to bring something up again after that fact, right. uh, you know, after the choice has been made. OK, cool. This is where it's at. Um, and that moment being one saying, hey, look. The problem is not that you want to bring up an objection. The problem is not that you, you know, you want to dissent. It's that we had a time and a place for that, um, and now the choice has been made. Um, is that something you could expand on a bit? That's right. So you know, this this principle is much like you know the, the famous phrase from a wedding ceremony. I don't think they actually do this anymore, but you know, you probably saw this on television. A famous moment when the minister turns to the audience, uh, you know, the, the friends yeah. and family, <laughs> speak now or forever hold your peace. Does anyone have an objection here? And, Right. And I think the question in that case, the hospital case, was a situation where people were, you know, basically not really voicing the objection in the meeting mm. and later trying to undo decisions they disagreed with. And, and he sort of went back to them and said, look, speak now or forever hold your peace. Mm. I'm going to give room to disagree and time and a place for it. But at some point, you know, we have to all get behind whatever decision has been made, recognizing we won't win every battle as individuals. Mm. Mm. That, and some you win, some you lose. You know, yeah. sometimes you line up and support the team, even if you were on the other side of the argument. And uh, and so that notion, and you have to set some ground rules. I think really good leaders set some ground rules. You know, mm -hmm. this is what I expect of you. Alan Mulally, the, the the very successful CEO at Ford, who turned Ford around. You know, when he brought his team together, and he took over Ford. He actually laid out some ground rules. This is how we're going to treat one another. This is how we're going to engage with one another. Mm. This is what I expect from you. And I think. Being really clear on your expectations of the team and how you want them to engage, it's really important, but then you have to hold them accountable to that. Yeah, yeah. 
actually, it, it reminds me of something that I heard at a uh, as a business seminar a little while ago. And unfortunately, I can't give the person the correct the, the credit they deserve for their observation. But that said, that you know, any healthy relationship, any healthy dynamic, whether it's in business or or personally anywhere, is always two parties being able to say, "Hey, this is what I need from you." Uh, and from a, a leadership management point of view, it's about you know setting the expectation, maybe the delivery date, the quality of what we're looking for. Um, and for the person who's having that expectation uh, placed on them, they need to at least be able to say, well, this is what I'll need from you in order to achieve that. Um, it might be access, it might be questions, it might be uh, resources or something like that. But that is how you create a healthy dynamic in that environment, as opposed to one where either, you know, it's just demands being placed on people or, uh, you know, there's forever a thousand handbrakes being found. Um, would you say that kind of lines up with, uh, with, with that dynamic you were talking about there? Yeah, I like that a lot. And I think that one of the things you can do as a leader is, is make yourself available mm. outside of the, the staff meeting, you know, in the one-on-one, -on -one, in the casual, yeah. more informal conversation. Because for some people, you know, they're not comfortable in, in, in a staff meeting with 12 people. Yeah, that's you a know, good point. Yeah. They have a lot more status or experience at the company. And so as a leader, you know, you're making yourself available to people um, who have a concern or a question or... Um, you know, look, they're willing to get behind the decision, but maybe they have a concern about how it's going to be implemented and they, they want to talk about it, making yourself available. So you, you're showing that, look, you do care about what they think and you want to hear it and you're willing to work with them. And so that availability, you know, in the old days, we called it management by walking around. Mm, right. Is really important. And it also shows a genuine willingness to listen on the part of the leader. And that goes a long way. Even when you make unpopular decisions, actually, it turns out research shows when you make the unpopular choices, that's when you need that support the most. Right. And yeah. so showing people that you genuinely listen to them, that you care about their views matters most when you make the unpopular call, because if they think, look, they listened, they just decide to go another way. You know, you're more willing to get behind it than if you think they didn't even listen. Yeah, sure. Right? Or, or it was a sham. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, now something I'd, I'd like to speak to then there, because you've, you've talked a few times now as well about um, when we're looking at the leader themselves. Um, and, and I think this is a really fascinating kind of way of unpacking this decision making process of of the role that the leader really plays in this, because you mentioned, too, that, yeah, there's a um, there's a group dynamic that's going on there as well. But certainly the um, I guess the personal, the character resources that the leader draws from. Um, to be able to facilitate that, uh, what have been some of the things that you've seen um, have either been uh, traits of, of of those strong leaders, or how can a person go from if they're if they're even looking at where they're at right now and saying, yeah, look, my team is a bit dysfunctional, um, and when it comes to making those tough calls, um, I'm kind of struggling. How does a person journey themselves to be to be the leader that that situation needs? You know, I think one of the things, first things the leader needs to do is understand that we're all subject to certain biases. Mm. Right. And perhaps one of the most powerful ones that affects all of us, but certainly affects leaders, you know, is confirmation bias. Yeah. You know, the, the old adage is, you know, that we tend to look for data that will confirm what we already believe. Mm. And we avoid or dismiss data that contradicts our pre-existing positions. And as a leader, being very aware of what's my pre-existing point of view. And is that shaping the way that I gather advice and information from my team? Mm. And. And am I framing this problem in a way where I'm only getting answers, the answers I want to hear? Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Any bias. 
and understanding what's my pre-existing position here. And sometimes the team is very aware of that pre-existing point of view. And so all the cards are on the table. Sometimes they're not. And in that case, do I want them to know my pre-existing point of view or, or do I want to get their ideas fresh and new before they know where I stand? Mm. The, understanding the confirmation bias, which is, you know, uh, it's why wow, we're all so vulnerable to it, right? And right. it's, it's it, you know, it's a great story about Charles Darwin. Um, I don't know if you've heard this, but the, the legend has it that Darwin was very cognizant of the fact that confirmation bias might be skewing his um, thought process as he was developing his theory of evolution. Sure. And so the story is that he, kind of, he kept two notebooks. One notebook was where he recorded observations that were consistent with his emerging hypotheses. Right. And the other is he forced himself to write down things that didn't fit. Nice. I like that. So he, no, I hadn't a, heard that. That's great. Great, great technique, right? So yeah. I always tell you, this is what you should do. Force yourself to write things down that don't fit your worldview, that mm. don't fit where you want to go, and, and start asking questions there. Now, that's a great way to, to sort of make yourself a little more aware of your own biases as a leader. Mm. Mm. In fact, that whole idea of biases as well, I mean, um, actually through the course of the, the, the podcast that I've done, it's something that um, um, I'm really pleased that you, you know, spoke a little more on that as well, because it's something that for me, Understanding that we do have biases in the first place um, can be quite a revelation to people who who are not prepared to, well, you know, maybe haven't heard that before or whatever, uh, that we like to think, yeah, we look at information and we coolly and clearly and rationally evaluate everything based on its merits and things like that. And uh, in fact, as a, as a bit of an exercise for myself, I, um, you know, considering Wikipedia is a font of all, font of all knowledge, right? Um, I, um, I did a quick check. And uh, you, do you know how many cognitive biases Wikipedia has just listed under its cognitive bias page? They must have 40. 179. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. 179. Yeah. I thought, well, look, if there was ever... <laughs> that's, a, that's a knockdown argument right there, huh? And, you know, it's just being aware, unfortunately, of these biases yeah. isn't enough to stop us from being victim uh, of them. My favorite bias... The one that I struggle with, I think mm -hmm. many people struggle with this, and you probably remember this, Andrew, from the course, is the sunk cost trap. Yeah, you know, yeah. The, Actually, yeah, the, speak more to that. That's awesome, yeah. Right, the idea of the sunk cost trap, well, a sunk cost is an investment of time, money, or other resources that we can't get back, right? It's sunk. It's buried. Mm -hmm. And we're mm -hmm. supposed to ignore those kinds of investments of time or money, right? Because, look, we're not getting that money back. We're not getting that time back. We should only look forward, not back. Let bygones be bygones is the adage, right? Right. But if that's not the way we behave. We, as humans, we have a very hard time cutting our losses. Mm. And in fact, it's not, not only that, but you know, what do we do at the casino? We double down, right? We <laughs> sure. money after bad in yep. hopes of, uh, of not wasting the prior investment. Mm. So we escalate our commitment to failing courses of action. We take more risk in the hope of winning back what we lost. Mm. It gets us in trouble in, in all walks of life. Is there and a practical is, example you could speak to with that? Because I think that's that's a really cool idea. So yeah, is there an example you could share from perhaps a, a you know a company or organization or something like that that would sh um, show that quite vividly? Sure. So from the business standpoint, one of the most famous examples that people often give is the is the Concorde, the, the supersonic jet that used to cross the Atlantic, the British okay. Airways supply. It turns out that the development of that jet went just way, you know, way beyond any budget projections and and it took much longer than anyone anticipated. Never achieved the commercial success that people anticipated. Um, 
So from a, you know, from a science standpoint, it was a marvel, but from a commercial standpoint, it was a total flop, which is why it eventually was terminated. But it was terminated after years and years of throwing good money after bad. Mm. Um, so that's one. I often give examples in, in America in baseball. Okay. Um, the players have what we call fully guaranteed contracts. So if you sign a player to a five-year, $100 million contract, mm. the money's guaranteed, which means that day two, they could you know, get totally out of shape and not play well, and you have no recourse. You owe them $100 million. Right. And what happens is teams cling to those stars far wow. past their performance because, well, you committed so much money to them, right? It's hard to walk <laughs> sure. Yeah. And then yeah. finally, maybe most tragically, the example I give um, one that's uh, from your part of the world, for, for actually involving a climber from New Zealand, mm -hmm. who died on Mount Everest, a, a man named Rob Hall, mm -hmm. one of the world's great climbers. And in 1996, he led an expedition team on Everest, and they kept climbing well past the point where they had said they would turn around. Mm. And they got stuck in a storm. They were climbing in the dark. And, and Rob and three of his clients and guides died uh, in a single night on Everest. And it's a clear example of the sunk cost trap of, of uh, not being willing to turn around because you'd put so much money, effort, time, energy into that mountain and you were so close to the summit. Mm. And uh, Rob, and you know, he wasn't the only one that night, but, um, but I think of him now talking to you because he, he happened to be from New Zealand. He was at the yeah. time one of the world's great, great climbers. Mm. Um, he had did dozens of clients to the top successfully and, and he had been to the top four times uh, before that year. But um, you know he's human, and he fell. He fell victim to that sunk cost trap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, it, it reminds me of from just some principles I was reading recently in uh, kind of in behavioral economics, and you know the work of people like Richard Thaler, uh, talking about how even you know people become risk seeking um, in those kind of environments too. Which I suppose is again we we do like you say it explains why we then even double down if not more. Where we go, well, geez, I better you know I really got to turn this thing around. What's something extreme that I can do to do that? Um, which kind of amplifies the problem in a lot of cases, doesn't it? Exactly, exactly. And, and, uh, and so this is why, as a leader, you want to really surround yourself with, with a good team. And this mm -hmm. is more an argument for why it's so important to have that robust dialogue and debate. Because if, if any one given individual is going to be subject to these biases, and if you as the leader, you have the most power on the team, mm. right? you make the call, how do you protect yourself from these biases? Well, we know from ample research that just being aware of your own biases is not enough yeah. to protect you from doing it. So you have to have others around you who, who are willing to have that robust dialogue. Um, and that's one step toward helping to protect yourself against some of those traps. Yeah. In fact, I think too, one of the examples you gave of the, um, the Cuban Missile Crisis there and what Kennedy had learned was that um, he himself removed himself from a lot of those debates, didn't he? So that his yeah. presence wouldn't taint the, the, the quality of the decision-making and the conflicts that were happening. It was a fascinating move by Kennedy. He decided, well before the missile crisis, he decided that one thing he might do in future decisions was remove himself from, from the room to wow. give his team a chance to have ample dialogue where they weren't worried about what the boss would think. Mm. And uh, McNamara, who was his Secretary of Defense, who I had a, a, a chance to interview in my research, McNamara said, we met for you know days uh, with him not present at most of our meetings, he said, that's the way to get your people to be frank and honest. It mm. gave us the opportunity, McNamara said, to speak a little more freely, not worry about how he might perceive our statements. 
and also to test out some ideas with our colleagues before we then put, present them to the boss. Mm. Um, so it was really important. Now, very important though, that Kennedy did not ha say to the team while I, he stepped out of the room, you go build a plan and I'll say yeah or nay. Instead, what he said was, come to me with options. Mm. And I think it's important because he didn't lock himself in to having to say yes or no to a recommendation, perhaps a unanimous one on the part of a whole group of people. Mm. Instead, he said, bring me options, show me the pros and cons of options. It gave him the wiggle room to then make a choice without feeling like he was up against the whole team. Right. Right. I think that was a really important way that he framed that process so that he could feel secure enough to step out of the room. Mm, mm. And as you mentioned, with when you do have those kind of confirmation biases in play, right? As soon as you've kind of give it, you, you can read a room. Uh, and, and when there's that one idea that people are getting excited about, so easy. And look, I've, I've done this myself, where we suddenly go, oh, yeah, we all like this idea, don't we? Yeah, isn't it a great idea? And then, of course, you just come up with more and more reasons why it can be a great idea, <laughs> which, right. again, you know, amplifies your risk. Yeah. The latest research from uh, Google uh, so Google embarked on this fascinating project over the last couple of years called Project Aristotle. Okay. And what, you know, as, as Google is wont to do, they collected enormous amounts of data uh, mm. and they tried to identify what are the attributes of a, quote, rock star team at Google. Ah, cool. Now, what for a great team? And, and you know, of course, their insight ultimately was one that didn't shock scholars. We've kind of known this for a long time that, that who is on the team matters a lot less than how the team is managed. Yeah. How people work together. And mm. of the attributes that they discovered, the single most important one was what my friend and, and often co-author Amy Edmondson describes as psychological safety. Uh -huh. The notion, do people feel like this team is a place where I feel safe uh, admitting a mistake, expressing a dissenting view, challenging the conventional wisdom, you know, Am I willing to take an interpersonal risk in this group? You know, am I willing to speak up? Or do I feel for some reason why this is not a safe environment to do so? And at Google, they discovered, much like Amy has discovered her work, that this is one of the most powerful elements of team effectiveness. Mm. And if you don't have that, you know, you're in trouble. It, it's, it can lead to a lot, of, a lot of dysfunctional behaviors on the part of team members and ultimately lead to some bad choices. Actually, I love that you brought that up because it's something that um, actually my work, I should say, too, outside of, you know, podcasting with the other side of the world. Um, I, I work in training and recruitment with people as well. Um, and it's been interesting for me to see how this idea of, of trust and safety has really, um, I would say, in my observation, emerged in the last, say, five or ten years a lot more strongly. Um, I've seen some very cool articles from, you know, everywhere from the Harvard Business Review uh, through to even guys like, say, Simon Sinek and people like that you'd probably be aware of who have really started to champion this this thing. Um, and what I, you know, when I kind of stepped back and looked at it, I saw how that started to challenge, I guess, what I had seen as conventional wisdom, that the best way to get something out of people or a team was to put the acid on somebody, uh, was to put them under stress, to put them under pressure. Um, so how do you see this, you know, these, is there a, a space where both of those things can be true or have we perhaps, has the pendulum swung too far one way and now needs to rebalance? What are your thoughts? Well, I think that people, as often happens with this kind of work, is they can, they can jump to a, a conclusion which is far, uh, it's inadequately nuanced. Let's put it that way, right? So, <laughs> nice. I'm going to steal that for another time. I think that's inadequately nuanced. That's beautiful. 
give me an example. The Malcolm yep. Gladwell, 10,000 hours. Oh, sure. You know, yep. Thing, mm -hmm. Right. He, he, he took a very well-grounded piece of research on deliberate mm -hmm. practice and he boiled it down and, and people came away with this impression. It wasn't all Gladwell's fault, but that, you know, well, anybody could, if they just practice 10,000 hours, could be a world-class athlete, gymnast, pianist, violinist, whatever. And, you know, I don't care how many times I shoot the basketball. I am not Michael Jordan, right? <laughs> right. It's happening, right? So, but with the safety stuff, one of the things that Amy talks about is, you know, when you, when you launch a project, you know, there's, you can frame something for execution. You can adopt what she calls a production frame, or you can adopt what she would call a learning frame. Mm, so you, okay. sometimes when you're doing something where you've done it a million times before and you're in execution mode, right? Whereas, and, and that's where, you know, um, you are, you're, you're trying to be as efficient as possible, mm. right? Trying to repeat steps that you've outlined in a clear procedure. But there are times when we're doing those new things, when we have to learn and improve only by doing, can we learn and improve? And that's wow. where, we need that really safe, trusting environment where we need people willing to maybe question a procedure, deviate, probe, learn, experiment, et cetera. There are times when, look, we just need people to execute because, look, mm. this, is the, this is, you know, the standard procedure. We've refined it over many, many years. Not that we would never want anyone to question, but we're optimizing in that kind of world. Mm. Whereas in that other kind of world where we're exploring new terrain, we're not, we shouldn't be optimizing at all. We should adopt the mindset of learning and improving by doing. Mm. So Amy says, you got to know what world are you in? What situation are you in? And, and which behaviors do you want to really emphasize? I think that's really important. Oh, absolutely. Actually, it, it again triggers something else in my memory of, um, it was again from um, uh, Richard Thaler's um, book, Misbehaving, again, that overview of behavioral economics for those of you who are listening and curious. Uh, but um, that he, he actually made an insight that, that really struck me was that often the cost of trying something and it failing is greater than the reward that we get for, you know, doing something and it succeeding. So, for example, uh, use the example of uh, in certain businesses where, you know, if somebody tries something and it doesn't work out, uh, well, if it does work out, maybe they get a bonus of, you know, they get a month's salary or, you know, three months or something like that. Uh, but if it doesn't work out, um, they're afraid that their job could be on the line. So it creates that environment where, uh, again, because of that lack of safety there, the, the, the potential penalty for trying something and it not working is greater than the reward they would get for it succeeding. And so ultimately you do, you get an environment where, well, people just don't take risks anymore. That's right. And I think, you know, what we know, I think a lot more attention has been paid to the notion of how do you create environments where people are able to, willing to, encouraged to experiment. Yeah. And if you're encouraged to truly experiment, of course, there will be failure, right? It's, yeah. it's not an experiment if you know for sure it's going to succeed. It's not right. really an experiment, right? It's more validation if, you're, if you know you're going to succeed. Hmm. And so how to create an environment where you're willing to tolerate some failures. But again, this is something where we... <laughs> I feel like we've become, we fall in love with failure. You know, everywhere you yeah. go, you TED talk or an article now about how we have to embrace failure. Well, no, not all failure, right? Again, people are being far, uh, far too monolithic in their understanding of this. What we're yeah. saying is we want to embrace experimentation. We want uh -huh. people to, to take small bets, to learn by doing, and to adapt based on the learning they've done. What we don't want is them taking billion dollar bets without adequately having prototyped and experimented 
mm. and failing. That kind of failure is not tolerable, and no one should ever tolerate that. Someone mm. who didn't do their homework, didn't run the adequate tests and experiments, and went out and bet a billion dollars and, and you know, didn't show any of the kind of learning behaviors they should have shown. So not all failure is tolerable, but the mm. kind of people are truly engaging in good, uh, forthright experimentation where they're trying, where they're probing, trying to learn. We need to encourage that. And the only way to encourage that is to make sure, as you say, that we don't punish every failure that occurs there. Mm. Um, but that, that's a tough thing to do in organizations that are driving toward performance goals, that have hard targets they're trying to meet. How do you carve out some space for that kind of experimentation? I think it's just very difficult to do. Much easier said than done in most organizations. Sure, sure. Well, I think though, you know, I mean, in terms of what you've you've spoken to already, in terms of this understanding of of safety in an environment as well. I mean, what has um, uh, been interesting for me to see, and it was an article I read recently through the Harvard Business Review on this idea that the benefit of a high trust organization um, in terms of things like just productivity. Uh, and, and innovation as well. What what they actually uh, what they create because people are are safe to to, to experiment and and they do feel as though there is a yeah a culture of safety there. Um, there are performance benefits that far outstrip I guess what could be perceived as a risk um, of you know supporting those kind of failures. Uh, you know so say supporting failures is the wrong term to use, but I think you get where I'm going with that, right? Of course. I mean, you know, and, and how do you, the, the benefits long-term of having an engaged workforce. Yeah, uh, who, that's it. Who's yeah. doing work, who understands their work matters. I mean, those benefits long-term are, are tremendously positive. Mm. Uh, and we know that now. And we know, of course, from, from a lot of research that's been done by uh, Gallup and others on employee engagement, that you've got, you know, unfortunately, huge sections of the workforce in many countries who yeah. feel disengaged. Um, and are not as productive as they could be. And so um, I think companies more and more in the last decade have put a lot more emphasis on trying to measure engagement, understand it. And I think coming to recognition that um, that they're, they're leaving a lot of productivity on the table. Yeah. Uh, how can we overcome that? It doesn't mean you're creating a culture where people aren't accountable, mm. where there are ambitious targets. See, I think this is where people maybe take the wrong path and understand that you can create a culture where people are empowered, where there's trust, um, where they feel safe. It doesn't mean people aren't accountable. They're yeah. driving towards goals, right? You mm. can do both. Um, mm. You know, but again, that's something that it, people see the world as black and white, right? And so yeah. they don't see that that can happen. Well, I mean, it, it cycles back to one of those fundamental ideas we talked about at the beginning, right? That if you if you see that a, a decision making well, decision making is a process. Um, in fact, I think, um, again, if my memory serves me, you spoke particularly to that idea of the myth of the singular cause, um, which I think is just an amazing insight right there that in any kind of given information uh, situation, there's a lot of factors kind of going on and working together here. And if we're aware of the nuances of these sorts of things, we are far better prepared to create a, a team culture that supports that and, and, and support our decision making processes to get the results we want as opposed to, like you mentioned, you kind of go from one fad to another, right? This is the big thing at the moment. Oh, okay, we go all the way over here and then, nope, that's not what we're doing anymore. Come back the other way. Um, understanding that nuance creates a, a much more real environment too, I believe. Right. There are always multiple causes for any success or failure. And, and you know, the best organizations reflect on their work. They, mm. they, they learn lessons from it. 
but they're careful in the way they learn those lessons. They're careful to compare their successes and failures and to recognize that there's no one factor driving success or failure. There's often multiple factors, some internal, some external. And only when you really understand that can you improve. Because if you mm. misattribute all success or failure to that one factor, yeah, you won't improve as much as you could, right? I mean, mm. and so recognizing that is really important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's actually interesting in New Zealand right now, we have our, um, uh, our parliamentary elections coming up uh, in the next little while. Um, and I find that a fascinating, I know it's a kind of stepping into politics, but that same kind of thing when people say, why is, you know, why is the country the way that it is? Well, it's because of this, you know, and it'll be that one thing, you know, yep. <laughs> oh, it's because exactly. of this one decision that we made. And he's like, uh, I don't know. I think that probably could be a little oversimplified. And, and we do the same thing in businesses. We yeah. also do the same thing in regard to, to the leadership of those businesses. You know, hmm. we attribute too much of the success to the CEO. And yeah, sometimes wow. yeah. failure to the CEO, right? And mm. we fail to recognize that there's more to it than that, right? And mm. um, yes, the CEO has a lot of power and, and ability to shape the direction of the organization. And sometimes they are the ones making calls that lead to some really bad results. Mm. But often there's more to it than just, uh, you know, that one individual and, mm. and the choices they make. Um, yeah. But it's, it's easier. It's easier for us to wrap our heads around, you know. Right. Apple was successful because of Steve Jobs, period, exclamation, <laughs> yeah. right? Now, actually, yeah. in that case, it might be true, but okay. <laughs> but you get, my, you get my point. I do, Just yeah. Fill things down. It's, it's easier for us to process it and mm. to comprehend it that way. Mm. And we can tell an easier story that way. Yeah, right? true. It's, yeah. It makes a good story when it's about... Jeff Bezos, you know, and, and we right. can tell this story and we can build out this quirky character that he's got and, you know, and the, and the biceps bulging and the, you know, the, <laughs> just, you know, we got this myth about him, right? It's, that's a story. It's interesting. It's fun. Yeah. A story of organizational processes and culture and values. That's not an interesting story to anybody but a nerd like me, you know. Yeah, it's just, right, right. Oh, it's such a good point. I love that. And, and even too, the fact that there are, um, you know, occasionally unplanned factors that were a big part of that. Um, in fact, you know, you mentioned Google earlier on. And um, again, I might not have the numbers quite right. But I remember, uh, you know, they talk about talked about a time in their development where I think I think they nearly sold the whole company for like $2 million or something like that. Um, to well, might have been. But there are a lot of stories like that about companies, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, luck plays a role. I, oh. I tell you a story. Um, I interviewed a, a Navy SEAL once, um, and he said to me, this is really it's a great statement. He goes, the minute that we forget that luck was part of our last successful mission hmm. is the minute we put ourselves in grave peril. Wow. Isn't that a great quote? That it's is so cool. Yeah. Yeah, wow. No, I love that. I love that. Well, look, in, in the time that we've got left as well, as time has kind of flown, but, um, you know, you did mention as well when we were just kind of getting ready to start this conversation that you've uh, you've got a new book that's in the works and uh, kind of a, a new direction that you're looking to focus on for now. So um, could you speak to that for a little bit and let us know, uh, you know, where, where, that's, where things are going for you now and, and how this field of decision making is developing for you? So for me, working on decision making, I, I became interested uh, more and more in creative problem solving. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, five or six years ago, became very interested in the, in the process of design thinking. 
yep. which um, you know has spread as a concept and a practice. Uh, many companies trying to learn more about it. Many of my clients were trying to learn more about it. And what I saw was, and I, you know, when I out looked at some of the leading firms such as IDEO, who really you know have evangelized the power of design thinking, mm-hmm. and it's a tremendous technique, and I and I, I love it. I teach to my students. But what I found and saw was a lot of companies struggling implementing it. Okay. That actually, this is a lot harder to do than it seems. You know, it's one thing to look at some of the world's leading design firms practicing design thinking. It's another for a big industrial company that's, you know, been bending steel for 200 years to suddenly try to implement this kind of a process. But I also found that even young students that I was teaching struggled with this process. Turns out, you know, it's really a very different way of thinking. And it goes against a lot of the ways we normally think and, and, Mm. and, we problem solve. And so the book's really about why is design thinking and this approach to creative problem solving in general, why is this so challenging for us? Yeah. Uh, and and how, do we over, how do we identify some of the obstacles that we'll face if we try to engage in this kind of a creative problem solving process, how we overcome those? So I don't have all the answers yet, but that's the project and uh, I'm having fun working on it. So it's great. Oh, no, it's, uh, well, you know what, if we actually get back to the fundamentals on that then too, for those who, who that idea of design thinking is a new concept, um, could you unpack that a little bit for us and um, explain just a little bit about what that does involve? So design thinking is is not product design. It, it emerged out of the design field, but what it really is is a is a problem solving process that okay. can be applied to to any type of complex problem, not just a problem of design. It, it's a human centered approach, meaning it starts with a series of tools and techniques drawn from the field of design that are used to gain great empathy with whoever the user is, the person is that you're trying to solve a problem for. Okay. And then rooted in trying to gain great empathy for the struggles they're having, the pain points they have with this existing product or service, you then use that to then try to generate solutions for them, right? And so mm-hmm. um, it takes the these techniques, some of these techniques that designers have used traditionally, but applies them more generally to any kind of creative problem solving situation. Um, and it can be incredibly powerful and it is rooted in the notion of, of you don't get to the best answer simply through analysis and information gathering. Mm-hmm. Um, so traditionally the way we solve problems is we think mm. and then, yeah. whereas design thinking, the notion is you build to think, right? Meaning okay. you, you very quickly, much more quickly than we are normally, uh, 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 apt to do. We move to prototyping. We move oh, to, tr- right. yeah. to try something and to get it in front of people and get their reaction. Normally, mm. most of us would instead do tons of analysis. And we right. wouldn't show something to the customer until it's perfect. But in design thinking, we really move to get the imperfect in front of people so we can mm. learn as quickly as possible. Mm. Now you see why this is so difficult. That runs so counter to the yeah. way many of us want to behave. And in big organizations, it runs counter to the culture, right? Oh my goodness, we're gonna put something imperfect. And once, one of the things I learned in my research is I thought, well, it must be a fear of putting the imperfect in front of the customer. Okay. But what I heard in one of my interviews a couple of weeks ago was actually the bigger fear is putting the imperfect in front of senior leaders. Wow. In their own yeah. Companies. And so yeah. design thinking is really challenging, mm. this notion. Build to think is harder to do than we think, but it, it, it's so powerful. So that's where I'm going. I hope it will shed some light and hope people 
can can be more effective at implementing this problem-solving approach and hopefully get more innovation out of it as a result. Yeah, actually, it um, makes me think. Have you uh, you're aware of the uh, the marshmallow challenge? I do it all the time. Oh, yeah. there you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, so again, for those of you who are listening and aren't, aren't aware of it, it's basically where you take a team of people together and you give them, off the top of my head, I think it's uh, 20 bits of spaghetti, um, a yard of tape, um, and a yard of string, uh, and a marshmallow. And the idea is they have to build the tallest structure possible. Um, and um, to be on top. Yeah, yeah. And the marshmallow. So it's ultimately it's got to support this marshmallow. Um, uh, in fact, it's, it's probably better for people to hear you speak on this than me. So with the, some of the things that actually show up and that actually speak to exactly what you're talking about, right? This idea of they've got 20 minutes and, and how people generally allocate their time. Well, yeah. So what you see with many people is that they, they, they sit down and they try to come up with a, a design, a plan, a sketch. Right. Yep. What should it look like? And they argue, and they can't agree, and they, you know, whatever. And then they start building and they've got 18 minutes to do this, and somewhere around minute 16, they finally touch the marshmallow. <laughs> yep. And they put it on this structure they've been building for 16 minutes, and they've, of course, assumed a marshmallow is light, but in fact, it's heavier than they think it is relative to the spaghetti, uh -huh. and they're talent topples. And yep. now they've only got like 90 seconds to try to fix it. <laughs> the best yep. teams play with the marshmallow, right? They prototype. Mm. They try things out. They, they don't build the final tower first. They build, you know, some structure. They get a feel for what kind of a design might work. They get a feel for how heavy the marshmallow is relative to the spaghetti. Mm. They get a feel for how they might use the string because it's hard to imagine how you might use the string, right, at first. Yeah, and cool. evolve to an idea over the mm. course of 18 minutes. The thing mm. is most people think, 18 minutes, I don't have time to experiment, right? But in fact, you do. Yeah, but but the natural tendency is no, we don't. We don't have time for that, right? It's another reason why we don't do enough testing and prototyping, experimenting. Is we often think I don't have time for that. Mm. Mm. When in fact, you know, you you can be a lot more efficient with your time if you're good at doing that kind of experimentation. Yeah, it, so it, 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 brings, it, opens, it opens eyes. You know, it it really does when you do it. Yeah, well, I was just going to say because it, it it actually I feel like it brings together. Um, a lot of the things we've actually talked about over the last little while as well, that you end up in this environment where um, because we're prepared to to make a choice and go with it and we've got a safe environment to try something different, um, you know, we're able to do that. In fact, one of the things that, that made me laugh about that that marshmallow challenge when I, uh, there's a TED talk on it too for, for those listening who want to check it out. Uh, but um, the, the group that did the best uh, was kindergartners. Which I right. thought was, it was just amazing to me. And then the one that struggled the most were, were the business grads. So there you go. What do you do with that? <laughs> I love it. It's because the kindergartners, of course, have, have the natural tendency is to kind of want to play with the marshmallow and, and yeah. try things. The business grads, what have they been taught? Plan, do, check, act. Mm, yeah. 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 Whatever. You get that right in the right order. Sorry. You get the idea. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, they get, they're, they're taught to plan, right? Sure. And um, and, and so they, they can't get out of that sort of me mental model, um, mm. whereas the kindergartner naturally has a very different model. You know, there's a, there's, there's a famous expression by Picasso, I'll forget it now, I'm going to botch it, but something about every child is an artist, um, but we, we sort of remove the artist from them. It's not that some are born not artists. They're all mm. born artists. The mm. sad 
something about what we do to them in education and other things where we take the artist out of them in a way. Yeah. So it's no surprise. Those kindergartners still have the artist in them, right? They still are not afraid to try things. They, their safety is not a, psychological safety is not a concern to a, to a five-year-old, right? They yeah. all feel kindergarten is safe environment. Somewhere in seventh or eighth grade, they're not in a safe environment anymore. Now they're worried about what others think of them and, and, and what the teacher thinks of them, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Inherently, the kindergartner doesn't worry. You know, you know my, my, even my nine-year-old, he doesn't really care much what others think. You know? He's yep. starting to maybe change a little bit, but he's still in that wonderful mode of just being who he is and having ideas and not mm-hmm. worrying. We need I- to somehow rekindle that in people if we want them to be innovators. Yeah, actually, it speaks to a conversation I had with um, uh, someone uh, in the last few weeks as well, who she, she'd spoken to the development journey in her business and made that point too, that even when we think about character traits like being persistent, um, and she, I thought was a stunning point, which she said, well, the thing is, we're actually all born very persistent. Uh, you know, you don't, you don't meet someone who, you know, as a baby uh, tried to crawl for a little bit and then went, ah, oh, you know what, not for me, and just rolled everywhere for the rest of their life. You know, like this this whole thing Great. where we are we're, we're we're born to like you know we we do we persist again and we do it over like a year or two or three you know where we're learning how to pull ourselves up and then we're learning how to walk slowly one foot after the other then we run and then we can jump and that's naturally what we do we don't even have to train a child hey you really you really don't want to give up uh, you know eighteen month old um, you can do this uh, we believe in you that's great I love that that's fantastic yeah yeah. Well, look, I, I wish you all the best with that study because I think that really speaks to... I, I see that really pulling a lot of these strands together. Uh, you know, these, these environments where you know, we're able to try things and create safe environments where we can have this iterative process and, and leadership that supports that. So um, when do you have, a, uh, I guess, a goal of when the book may well be out or is there anything else um, for those who are listening can, can look out for, uh, for other things from yours if, if they want to follow what you're up to? Well, I hope that um, it'll be out next summer. That's the that's kind of where my goal, my personal goal is. Uh, in the meantime, we're, we're hopefully working on a, an article that we we hope will come out in Harvard Business Review um, okay. on uh, on uh, on the, on design thinking. But uh, for those who really want to read up on on me, also I keep a blog that um, that um, you know I'm pretty regularly post to, so they can look for that out on the web and mm-hmm. um, and then follow me on Twitter as well. I, I try to post a lot of my I, I'll post what I'm doing, what's on my blog uh, there as well, Michael A. Roberto on Twitter. So, mm-hmm. And the, uh, the, the blog is, is michael-roberto.blogspot.com. Is that right? That's right. There you go. You see, we, we do our research around here. I tell you what. <laughs> hey, look, I, I want to thank you very much again for, for making the time to talk to me this morning. Um, I mean, again, opposite sides of the world, but um, I just think, again, this idea of how we can support decision-making amongst people and just understanding the nuance there, um, yeah, look, uh, all the best with what you're doing. I'm, I'm truly inspired by it. So um, I just want to thank you again. Thanks, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. Michael Roberto, everybody. And uh, remember, you can find, first of all, his uh, course on the great courses, The Art of Critical Decision Making. Uh, and then, in fact, I found one of the easiest ways to track down everything Michael is involved in is literally just Google his name, Michael A. Roberto, uh, and you'll find his Twitter feed, you'll find his blog, um, and other places where his name also pops up with his involvement in other things related to decision making and that kind of good stuff. And it was good stuff, wasn't it? Man, I'd love to hear your feedback on that. You can always send it through to me at the Andrew Curtis Show uh, at gmail.com. That's us for another week. Have a good one.